Good morning, church. Thank you, Stephanie, and thanks to James and Savannah for uh, giving this hymn back to us with a new and refreshed tune. It's a good uh, introduction to the scripture we're about to read in Nahum chapter 2. Now, I'll read chapter 2, and we'll uh, use it as an outline for chapter 3. It's paralleled in chapter 3. We won't read all of the third chapter. Next week, we'll move on to Habakkuk. We're studying Nahum 2 and 3 today. You can find that on page 783 in the Pew Bible. And we've learned that uh, this is God's love. We've seen it over and over in these minor prophets. God's love is fierce. He loves us too much to continue in the ways we destroy ourselves and those around us. And so he must intercept, he must intervene, he warns, he threatens, he opposes. And in this hymn, you hear it as I quoted last week, praise the grace whose threats alarmed thee, roused thee from thy fatal ease. Praise the grace whose promise warmed thee. Praise the grace that whispers peace. We'll look at this God's threat against Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and hear how he predicts they're going to to fall, and it is the way they fell. They're undermined. They're attacked by the Babylonians, and these who thought themselves to be lions will be brought down and torn apart like lions. We'll hear that, and we'll cheer that God's enemies are, are destroyed. But I want you also to listen as your pastor will be listening. Those ways that we continue to trust anything in addition to or in the place of Christ alone. Begin reading in chapter 2 and uh, read to the end of the chapter. The scatterer, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened, the palace melts away, its mistress is stripped, she's carried off her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, there is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate. Desolation and ruin, hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, the lioness went? Where his cubs were with none to disturb? 
The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Back to chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And verse 15, behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord. Shut for whatever reason with unbelief or doubt or shame or fear selfishness, open our eyes that we would behold wonderfully liberating things in this portion of the gospel of your word. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said together, amen. I use an evangelism outline like some of you do that begins with two diagnostic questions. These questions were first used by a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of 10th Presbyterian in, in Philadelphia. They go like this. If you were to die tonight, you're striking up a conversation with somebody and, and you, you get enough trust where you can ask this question. If you were to die tonight, are you sure you would go to heaven? And then the follow-up question is, uh, if you were to go to heaven... And stand before God and he were to ask you, what, why should I allow you into my heaven? What would your answer be? Now, people answer that various ways. I've heard all kinds of answers over the years. Some people are not sure. You go directly into the gospel. You know, the Bible teaches that uh, from 1 John 5 that you can be sure about going to heaven, or some people are quite sure. A lot of people in the South are very sure they're going to heaven. And then you ask why, if God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would your answer be? And their answers sometimes are, Jesus died for my sins, and and I've also done thus and so, or not done other things. There's another pastor named... D. James Kennedy, he was pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian. He's gone on to be with the Lord, but he developed those two questions into a, an evangelism training methodology because he came to Christ through those two questions. He heard them over the radio one morning. He was an Arthur Murray dance instructor, and he heard those two questions. He had never thought of them before. He heard them from Barnhouse, and he followed the gospel and became a Christian, and he used that outline to teach people how to come to Christ. One of my friends was my, he had been my boyhood pastor. My friends was sitting with uh, Dr. Bar, uh, Dr. Kennedy one day at lunch and Dr. Kennedy was always looking for ways to share his faith and the waitress was attentive to them and he struck up a conversation and he said, can I just ask you a question if if the unthinkable were to happen, you were to die tonight, are you sure 
you would go to heaven. She said, oh, yes, I'm sure. I'm sure I would go to heaven. Well, and you, you were to stand before God and he would ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? She said, well, Jesus died for sins and I am a religious person. I'm spiritual. Dr. Kennedy didn't have time to go through the whole five-point outline, grace, man, God, Christ, faith. And he just had a short time uh, with her because she was busy. And, and so he, he picked up his own uh, butter knife and, and he reached for my friend's butter knife. And he said, you know, I found that there, and the Bible teaches this, that there are only two kinds of religion in this world and only one will get you into heaven. There is the I religion. He held up the knife straight up. He said, this is the I religion that will not get you to heaven. And there is a cross religion. He crossed the other knife. It's only the cross of Jesus Christ, trusting him and living in that cross. That is the only way to answer that eternal question. Why should I let you into my heaven? It's the only question for living life now and into eternity. Now, some of you are beginning to check out. Well, I was just listening to see if there was something new I could learn today in the, in the sermon. But this is, uh, this is the cross. That's old stuff. I know what that is. I believed in the cross of Christ. He saved me from my sins. Wake me up when it's over. But you're never done with the cross. You are always following the I religion or the cross religion. If you're not... In, hidden in the cross, not just initially for your salvation, but Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Hidden in the cross, finding your refuge, your stronghold constantly in the cross of Christ, under the cross of Christ, asking every minute, all the time, in every situation, what does Christ call me to? That's the only way to live securely now and into the future. So when I say, is God for you or against you? I don't, I don't mean that he, whether he is, does, was it, whether he loves you or not. If he loves you. You're created in his image. I mean, is he for what you are doing or is he against what you're doing? And if he is against what you're doing, to bring you under that cross means he must oppose you. That's the teaching of Nahum and the rest of the Bible. God loves us enough to oppose us, to offend us, to defeat us in order to save us. So let's go through the catalog that's outlined here in chapters 2 and 3 of what God may be against. God is against what you are doing if you are living out of love for the world that's manifested in three ways. We know it from First John as well. We can now outline chapters 2 and, and, and 3 this way, much of those chapters this way. The pride of life, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh. Let's start with the pride of life. Chapters, chapter 3, verses 12 to 19. The whole of chapter 2. The pride of life. These Assyrians are very proud they're very confident. Now, they may, have, uh, they, they, may, uh, have, they, they may be saying, you know, I believe in once saved, always saved. 
And we were saved 125 years ago. And so that's going to continue down through the generations. Jonah came, we repented, now we're saved. But we don't have to rely on God as much as we once did. Assyria had turned their back not just on God. Maybe they hadn't totally turned their back on God. Maybe they're just adding to their worship of God, other gods. The point is that they were trusting in lots of things other than God alone as their stronghold and their refuge. And they were trusting in what they could see. It was the pride of life. They were proud. They were proud of what they had. They were, they were, they were most proud of their military strength and their, the stronghold, the fortress that surrounded them, the security of their boundaries, the security of the fortress that was around Nineveh, miles wide, very high. You could run three chariots around the top of those walls. No one is going to break through those walls. And it was, uh, it was self-sufficient. Sennacherib, a great king, had uh, built a series of locks and dams and and could uh, control the amount of water that would come in. They would, they would, uh, their crops had plenty. They had drinking water. No one could cut them off and starve them out, so they thought. But God reasons with them. Chapter 3, verses 8 and following, he says, uh, now let me, uh, let me ask you something about this fortress. This fortress that you brag about. You, you, you claim to be lions, you're so, they're lions, they had lions on everything. We're strong as lions. Let me ask you about that fortress. Think about Thebes, the capital of Egypt. Thebes, the capital of Egypt, Egypt had been, had been a, a secure nation for 1,400 years, the dominant world power before Assyria rose to the same rose uh, in prominence over them, subduing them. He said, think about Thebes, chapter 3, verse 8 and following. Just think about it. There was the the capital of Egypt. Now, what were they proud of? They were proud of their borders and their military strength. They thought there's no way, no way anybody is ever going to march against us and undermine us. We have the the Red Sea on the east. We have... um, we have Cush uh, uh, to the north. We have, and, and, and Memphis is up there and, uh, and runs all the way. That border runs all the way to the Hittite kingdom. And then on the, on the south, we have Ethiopia, the palm of our hand. Nobody's going to come from the south. And then on the west, 400, 450 miles of desert. Who in the world is going to march around the Fertile Crescent come down through Central Africa, up through the West, across 450 miles of desert, and attack us. Except Assyria, who did just that. And now he says to Assyria, you're proud of your borders? You don't have the cushion that Egypt did, and you brought them down. Why could not someone bring you down? And it occurred, just as it was predicted, just as it was predicted here. He said, it's going to occur by water. 
You have these fancy locks and dams. Well, they're going to they're going to block up one of those dams, those floodgates, and they're going to let the water pile up in this unusual rain that year. And then they're going to let it go. And they did. And it flooded. It wiped the foundation out from under Babylon. And and, uh, the Babylonians wiped the foundation out from under the Assyrians. And they went in and plundered them. What are you taking pride in? The other other thing he confronts in chapter 2, verses 6 to 13, you don't need to look there, but look at verse 16. Just verse 16 of of chapter 3. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. But the locust spreads its wings and flies away. You trusted in your military strength, your boundaries, your geopolitical might, your savvy. You're also trusting in your money. You've multiplied merchants. You have the strongest economy in the world. You've hedged your bets against the future. There's no, no one who can bring down your economy. So you think. Maybe you're trusting in the same things. Trusting in the security of your nation. Trusting in the security of your political party or our geopolitical savvy as a nation. Trusting in the fences around your home. Your personal strategies for self-protection. Trusting in your financial plans. You're smart. People come to you and ask you questions for how to plan their finances for the future. Did you predict the pandemic? God says... You're either living under the cross or not. If you're living under the cross plus anything else, you're vulnerable. The pride of life, lust of the eyes, and then finally the pride, the lust of the flesh. Verses 4 to 11 of chapter 3. They trusted in these, these are good gifts, wine, leisure, sex, good gifts. When used God's way, with used within the boundaries he has established. But he says, because you have abused wine, you're not ready for the coming battle. Because you have abused leisure, you have not prepared for the coming battle. And because especially you have abused the gift of sexuality... Sex within marriage, the only satisfying, unregretful experience of sex. And you've grown tired with that, and so you've begun to experiment with it in various ways. Their own version of pornography, their, their own experimentation with sex among their own kind has left them weakened. Your men, he says, in effect, you're, it is because your men especially have failed to lead as warriors, as planners, as protectors, as sexual, sexually faithful. Because your men have failed to lead, you have an army of women. Now, it's not to offend against the woman warrior. I don't mean that. But he says, your men are failing to protect you by being 
shepherds, of their sisters, of, of their future wives, but failing to protect their future children with their own purity. And what's the result? They're lazy, they're passive, and they fail to protect women and children and their city. And so they fall like paper dolls. Lust of the flesh. God opposes everything we try to trust in outside of living solely, not just for the forgiveness of our sins, but the lordship of Christ living solely under that cross, asking, what does Jesus call me to do? Regardless, regardless of what the world thinks of me, regardless of what they call me, regardless of how much it costs me, I'm going to live under the cross. Brothers and sisters, you know, we're afraid of violent crime in this city, but we should be much more afraid of self-righteousness. We're afraid of violent crime, catching a bullet that will kill us, If you're in Christ, it won't take you to hell, but self-righteousness will. We're more afraid of violent crime than our materialism. More afraid of violent crime than our sexual indulgence. More afraid of violent crime than those things which he says will not be found in the kingdom of heaven. trusting in anything which is revealed by our fears outside of the cross of Christ alone will be opposed by God and make cowards of all of us too. God may be opposing you, warring against you, cutting out from under you everything that you are trusting in. You know, when I was a boy and I was training to be a lifeguard in Alabama and I learned from the first service that apparently Alabama is the only one who teaches life-saving this way. But uh, our favorite part of, of uh, lifeguard training was the panicked swimmer. I, I, we had a class of boys. I guess, I guess this was part of the strategy of our, our female coach. She, she, she said, it's time to practice the panic swimmer. We loved the panic swimmer uh, scenario because what you were to do is the panic swimmer, if you don't, if you don't neutralize the panic swimmer, he's going, to, he's going to drown you too. And so you have to neutralize the panic swimmer by whatever means. You hit him with the elbow. You hit him with the face. You knock him out. We loved that. We all dreamed of having a panic swimmer. Now, in the first service, I said, you learned that all right. And everybody stared at me blankly. One fellow said, even in Mississippi, we learned that you tread water until the panic swimmer, you know, loses breath or something. And then you take him. I said, well, we're more interventionist, I guess. But, but uh, the, 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 the presupposition was that you, you love this person uh, too much to let them drown both of you and so you knock them out and then when you knock them out you wrap them around the neck and you swim them safely to shore you didn't learn that you need to go back through life-saving school 
This is what God does. God loves you too much to let us go on in the delusion of trusting anything, living by anything, manipulating by anything, finding refuge in anything outside of the cross of Christ. We panic. We lose our courage. We come like an effeminate army of these warriors. We lay down our weapons. We allow ourselves to be plundered. Our women and children to be abused. We are opposed by God. Loves us. Loves us too much to allow us to go on in that way. He opposes. He fights against us. It's as if, you know, several years ago, there was, there was that, that uh, terrible capsizing of a Korean uh, vessel and, and, the, and, and the, the ones who were going to be saved had to crawl up the side of the ship, was now the top of the ship, and they hung on the, on the, on the guardrails, and then they, would, they put the life rafts underneath them, and they let go of the rail and fell into the life rafts. Now, imagine if you're up there, and you're hanging on those guardrails, and you've, you've got your, 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 your grip tightly around that guardrail. The most loving thing that somebody could do is come along and break your fingers. You may feel like God's doing that to you. You're holding on to this world and everything that can make you and ensure you of security and ensure the future of your children and ensure your, ensure your success and your acceptance and, and uh, God's breaking your fingers. You feel like he's knocking your legs out from under you, stripping you of everything that you thought was secure and stable and you mustn't think that God is mean he loves you enough to let you hate him for a while because he wants you in his arms the only place of security God is against whatever else you're trusting outside of the cross and he's what's he for He's for Christ. He's not for what you do. He's not for you making yourself good enough, getting rid of enough things that are offensive to him so that he can accept you. He's for Christ. And that's your good news. Because it means that if he is for Christ and he will never desert his son, he will never abandon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you get inside of Christ, you're absolutely secure. In the cross of Christ, there is your security. So what is the antidote? What is the antidote to the the pride of life, the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes? See in verse 15, chapter 1. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. What is that good news, that peace? It is that Christ died on the sins, as we learned last week, to forgive us of our sins, to lift up our sins and take them away, according to verse 3, alluding 
to Exodus 34, 6, 7. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. There's the first place to come. The first place you come today is to Christ and say, forgive me, save me. In theology, we make this distinction, the fides specialis and the fides generalis. Just a special faith. That's the first step you go to. The first step is to go to Christ. Put your special, take that that special offering of Jesus Christ. Put it specifically on Jesus and the work he did on the cross. And then it opens you to a world by which you generally trust him for everything else. All of your guidance, all of your direction, all of your provision. But here's what we often try to do. We try to reverse the general and the special. So what I'm going to do is, well, I'm going to go to his word and I'm find out what he's against and what he's for. So I'm going to get rid of pornography and I'm going to, I'm going to quit having sex outside of marriage. And I'm going, to, I'm going to straighten up a bank account and I'm going to start giving. And I'm going, to, I'm going to reform myself and then Jesus will accept me. Don't do that. You'll never get there. Go to Jesus first. Save me. You don't have to spell it out for him. He's in this business. He knows what to do. He can save you from your sins and the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's the first antidote to pride, the antidote to the lust of the the eyes is that trusting Christ as your shepherd. Verse 18, they had false shepherds. He says, I want you to have a true shepherd, and this shepherd will guide you. It may be through the valley of the shadow at times. But that valley of the shadow is, he's guiding you through there in order to get you to green pastures and paths of righteousness. You hang on to him no matter what it looks like. However counterintuitive it is to your eyes, you trust him. And putting yourself staying under the cross of Christ is the antidote to the lust of the flesh. Because he identifies himself in verse 19 as the healer. What is the ultimate cure for the lust of the flesh? What's the ultimate cure for your addiction? What's the ultimate cure for your sexual indulgence? The ultimate cure for your pornography. It's not just stopping. The ultimate cure is finding Jesus to be your healer. You're looking for something to heal you. You're looking for something to, 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 to fulfill, to make, to make you whole, to bring a new center to you. Something to make up what you feel has a deficit and you keep going to again and again to the same thing. And it doesn't work. It only makes you worse. More regret. More shame. And, and, and Jesus says, come to me. I'm the healer. He, he, Nahum's buddy, Jeremiah said, is there, there is no balm in Gilead to heal your sin-sick soul. You can, that was the, the pharmacy of the first world. Go down to Gilead. Get some ointment. Rub on it. It'll cure you. There's no balm in Gilead, in this world, healed your sin-sick soul. There's only Jesus. The one Isaiah prophesied about in 
in Isaiah 30 who said, I will heal all your wounds. Get yourself under the cross. It's the only place for safety. For this life. It's the only place of thriving. The only place of real life. Here and in the future. It's under the cross. Not in I religion. That's the same Darnell Gray Barnhouse who used to ask those two diagnostic questions great illustrator and one of his most famous illustrations was came from the old days of the railroads when they were first being cut across the western plains and he said across those wheat fields those steam locomotives would would uh, go and and uh, they're they're always casting off embers but there were 10 to 15 days a year when the wheat was too green to be harvested and too but dry enough to burn and one of those embers would 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 fly out of that steam locomotive and light up a field and burn acres and acres of wheat. He told about a farmer who, who looked out one day past his barn in his house and he saw the smoke on the horizon and he felt the wind coming toward him and he knew if, that, if those flames got to him, his house, his barns, everything would be destroyed. There was only one solution. It was a severe one. He had to light a backfire around, the, around his property and, and, and against his own wheat fields. And hundred, you know, acres and acres of land around his property had to be burned. The fire came. It went around him, saved his houses and barns, but he lost his fields. He was absolutely heartbroken, despairing, walked out across the charred earth. He saw one of his hens had gotten confused and run out into the fire. She was dead, charred. He kicks her in sadness. Out from under her ran a dozen chicks. She had saved them with her own body. Jesus said, over Jerusalem, even over the church, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her brood. Come to me, Jesus says, no matter what you've done, how far you've wandered. How much you've turned your back on him. The return is instant. Don't try to make yourself better. You'll never come at all if you do that. Come to Jesus right now and find your refuge now and in eternity in the cross. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, <clears throat> let none of us leave this place. Whether we have never committed our lives to you or whether we have walked with you for many years. Oh, Lord, put us back under the cross and may we take it up daily and follow you. Regardless of the threat that meets our eyes the enticement of the world. Oh, Lord, 
we want to be Jesus followers alone. In Jesus' name, amen.